Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode of the 5 Bytes Podcast, Google have patched multiple zero-day vulnerabilities in two version releases that were just five days apart. VMware ESXi and vCenter version 8 update 1 is now available. And good news, you don't need to disable TPM for QuickBoot anymore. And a former CIO of a major UK bank has been fined for his role in disruption to business caused by issues post-data migration project. For these stories and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my awesome sponsors that includes ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. VMware ESXi and vCenter version 8 update 1 are now available. vSphere 8 update 1 officially launches vSphere configuration profiles, which allow you to manage ESXi cluster configurations by specifying a desired host configuration at the cluster level, automate the scanning of ESXi hosts for compliance to the specified desired configuration, and remediate any host that is not compliant, and vSphere configuration profiles require that you use vSphere lifecycle manager images to manage your cluster lifecycle, a vSphere 8 update 1 environment, and an Enterprise Plus or vSphere Plus license. Also added was vSphere distributed services engine support for NVIDIA Bluefield 2 DPUs to server designs for Lenovo. Uh, 100G NVIDIA Bluefield 2 DPUs to server designs from Dell, UPT version 2 for NVIDIA Bluefield 2 DPUs, AMD Genoa CPU-based server designs from Dell. So DPUs are something that I've covered on previous episodes of the podcast. Be very interested to see if those are actually being like widespread uh, implemented in enterprise organizations now. I, I've been out of internal IT teams for a couple of years, so I don't necessarily have my finger on the pulse of IT infrastructure at the moment. Also, this release, the requirement has been removed that all vGPUs on a physical GPU must be of the same type, and you can now set different vGPU profiles such as compute, graphics, or virtual desktop infrastructure workload on one GPU to save cost by higher GPU utilization and reduced workload fragmentation. Also with this release, you no longer need to disable TPM version 2 for quick boot, which allows you to save time and eliminate security gaps. Uh, vSphere 8 update 1 adds NVMe over TCP support for vSphere virtual volumes. And with vSphere 8 update 1 to isolate NFS traffic, you can now bind an NFS3 data store on an NFS share over the network to a VM kernel adapter on an ESXi host from a cluster. There's also advanced filters that have been introduced into the vSphere client for administrators and much, much more. And I mean much, much more. There's a whole lot of changes listed within the release notes for these 
versions. So uh, I'll share a link to that. Uh, probably just share the E6i one because there's a lot of overlap between the E6i and vCenter uh, links. And you can find that with this episode, which is episode 278. You'll find that at fivebytespodcast.com. In 2018, UK Bank TSB had intended to update its IT systems and migrate data from corporate and customer services to Banco Sabadell systems as part of a merger. Although the migration was said to be initially successful, the platform subsequently experienced major technical issues, resulting in significant disruption of TSB's banking services. In-branch telephone, online, and mobile banking services were all severely disrupted due to the failed migration, which affected millions of customers, according to ITPro.com. In a pretty unprecedented move, last week the former CIO at TSB was fined for his involvement in the company's migration, which saw customers locked out of their accounts. Carlos Abarca, who led the botched IT migration, was handed an 81,620-pound fine by the Prudential Regulation Authority for failing to take reasonable steps to ensure that the bank supervised its outsourcing arrangements with a third party during the project. An investigation by the PRA found that Abarca failed to ensure that TSB had obtained sufficient assurance from the third party that the IT migration could be successfully carried out. Abarca was responsible for TSB's outsourcing relationship with its main third-party supplier for the migration program. However, the PRA found that the former CIO failed to ensure the third party's ability and capacity were adequately assessed on an ongoing basis. Similarly, The investigation concluded that Abarca failed to ensure that TSB had obtained sufficient assurance over the third party's readiness to operate the new IT platform. So I feel for the CIO because having worked just in projects, there's an awful lot of bait and switch that goes on from third party vendors. Like up front, it appears that they do have the resources and they do have the capacity and they do have the experience and knowledge in their teams for carrying out the project but then they may shuffle resources around a few weeks into the project. Like they might take their star people away and put them on another project that's beginning somewhere else. So, you know, this person might've gone in expecting them to be able to execute on the project successfully. And then it was seemingly successful, but it kind of fell apart after the fact, but maybe those key resources were no longer committed to the project. And maybe the failing here is to just not have a clause or, something in there to ensure that that third party had to keep those dedicated resources on the project to ensure its success. I'm not entirely sure. Obviously, this is just an article. It's not a full list of what went on in the case. But honestly, just on its facts listed in this article, I feel bad for the CIO and I think it sets a pretty dangerous precedent. Maybe they need to go after these uh, outsourcing companies. The Azure App Service new premium version 3 offerings are now available. So the Azure App Service has introduced two new offerings in the premium service tier, P0v3 and P-MV3. And the P0v3 is a cost-effective offering providing one vCPU and four gigs of memory. And the new memory-optimized P-MV3 offers span from two vCPU and 16 gigs of memory, all the way up to 32 vCPU and 256 gigs of memory. 
The P0V3 is the most cost-effective price-to-performance offering in the premium V3 tier, while the memory-optimized P-MV3 offering enables you to provision applications requiring more memory to cache data or render larger web pages. For more information on both of these offerings, I'll share links with this episode. Hot patching is now in preview on Windows Server 2022 Data Center Azure Edition with the desktop experience installation option. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you'll have heard me talk about hot patching before, and it makes patching a lot less intrusive and problematic by installing the patches in the background and not requiring reboots to complete installation of the Windows updates. Microsoft have shared instructions if you'd like to get started with testing this feature in Windows Server 2022 Data Center Azure Edition, as long as you have that desktop experience installation option selected. Uh, And I'll share a link with this episode for that. I had the honor to participate in a joint webinar with Kevin Goodman from AWS on the topic of how to modernize application management for Amazon Workspaces by upgrading from WAM to CloudPager. And I'm covering this as a story because during the webinar, Kevin emphasized the urgency for existing Amazon Workspaces application manager customers to migrate off of the platform because as of September 1st, it is being retired. So if you do not migrate before then, you're going to lose access to your application management within Amazon Workspaces. So it is free to make the switch to CloudPager and CloudPager is charged at the same rate that you're currently paying for WAM. Uh, So if you are an Amazon Workspaces customer and you are using WAM, uh, be sure to check out the webinar for more information on how you can very quickly and easily migrate to CloudPager and also benefit from a lot of the improvements on performance for your applications and some modern application management features rolled into the product. So during the webinar that I just mentioned that I did with Kevin Goodman, at a point we discussed the issue of app updates gone wrong. Well, how about the reverse, where not deploying a patch goes wrong? I think this next story may be one of the ultimate nightmare scenarios from an undeployed patch haunting an organization. The register reported that an Australian military helicopter crash was reportedly caused by failure to apply a software patch with the hefty side serving of pilot error. The patch in question prevents pilots of the MRH-90 Taipan helicopter from performing a hot start of the of the helicopter's engine, a technique that sees the craft's motor powered down and then restarted. The MRH-90 helicopter is not designed to do that, with safe procedure instead being to leave the engine idling until it is turned off at the end of a flight. The report suggests that a patch preventing hot starts has been available for years, but has not been applied to all of the Australian Army's Taipans. The helicopter was taking part in a routine counterterrorism training activity on March 23rd when it ditched just off a beach in the state of New South Wales. All 10 Australian Defence Force personnel aboard the helicopter were accounted for, with two experiencing what the Department of Defence described as minor injuries. Australia grounded its 47-strong Taipan fleet while authorities investigated the incident and presumably made sure that all 47 are updated on their software. Australia's Department of Defense is not commenting, however, on the patch. So let that be a warning. 
Patch, patch, patch. There was a recent tech community article by Microsoft that states that when you suspend BitLocker, you're able to specify how many times your device can restart before BitLocker resumes encryption. Now, this is a feature, and this is called the reboot count parameter. You could set this parameter using the PowerShell command suspend-bitlocker. Now, the but, but there is a known issue with BitLocker that you may encounter. BitLocker does not resume automatically after suspending when out-of-box experience is not complete. So that OOBE process of when you're booting Windows. OOBE is the process of setting up your device for the first time after installing Windows 10. And this means that your device will remain unprotected until you manually resume BitLocker. The expected behavior would be the BitLocker is active after the reboot because of the reboot count one option. However, this may not be the case as no user has logged onto the client before and the user OOBE has not completed. And then BitLocker remains in a suspended mode until manually resumed. And there's a manual fix for this that's listed in the article. And I was actually surprised to see this because I deployed or implemented uh, MBAM, uh, the Microsoft BitLocker administration management software in the past. And that was for Windows 7. And I think we encountered something similar where after boot, it would not kick off the encryption correctly. So it seems like that may still be the case. Citrix recently had an article about the reducer feature, which they claim can reduce bandwidth usage by up to 15%. The reducer is a general purpose compressor designed to work across all virtual channels and which has been in Citrix's products for 20 years. But there is now a new algorithm that is so optimized that based on their testing, server scalability does not appear to be affected by it. Or to put it another way, users should not see any degradation in the in-session experience when it's applied. Not only does lowering bandwidth reduce costs on a pay-per-byte network, it also means that packets take less time to transmit, resulting in faster response times. And this is particularly true on constrained or shared links, for example, at a remote branch office. You can turn on the new reducer with a single registry setting in the VDA version 2303, and you'll also need Citrix Workspace app 2303 for Windows 2. On Friday, Google released an emergency security update for a zero-day vulnerability in Chrome, and it is being actively exploited. The flaw impacts Windows, Mac OS, and Linux versions of the Chrome desktop browser prior to build version 112.0.5615.121. The vulnerability tracked as CVE-2023-2033 has a severity rating of high and is classified as a confusion flaw located in Chrome's V8 open source JavaScript engine, which that is routinely uh, being compromised with vulnerabilities, unfortunately. The description of the flaw describes the exploitation of the flaw as allowing a remote attacker to potentially exploit heap corruption via a crafted HTML page. But as usual, Google did not share very much technical detail on this one. And Google subsequently also released a patch on Tuesday to address another zero-day vulnerability. That flaw is tracked as CVE-2023-2136 and is described as a case of integer overflow in Skia, which is an open source 2D graphics library. 
Clement Lysen of Google's Threat Analysis Group has been credited with discovering and reporting the flaw on April 12th of 2023. The integer overflow in Skia in Google Chrome is prior to version 112.0.5615.137 and allowed a remote attacker who had compromised the render process to potentially perform a sandbox escape via a crafted HTML page. So that's two zero-day vulnerabilities that were patched in the space of five days within Chrome. And I have an automated process that goes out and checks to see if there's a new version of Chrome available in the stable release. And if there is, it will automatically patch it. Now, in the past, it seemed like the stable release was being updated every couple of weeks, and then it seemed to become like every week. And now it seems like the minor version increments every single night. So... Uh, it's probably a good idea to stay on top of all of these updates. That way you don't have to worry about when these zero-day vulnerabilities are being exploited in the wild and you're being told, you know, let this update or push this update if you've got the auto-updates disabled. Nine organizations based in Ireland have had their data stolen following a ransomware attack on a company in Northern Ireland. At least four of the organizations deal with victims and survivors of rape and sexual abuse. The company, Evide, which is based in Derry and manages data for around 140 charities and nonprofit organizations in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the UK, state that none of the material stolen, which is described as highly sensitive and personal information, has so far been published on the Darknet or other online forums. CEO Maeve Lewis stated, quote, the data which was stolen included personal information. There would be also have been short records of people's engagement in our services that is stored separately. So we really don't know what the situation is with that data. We do know that any attachments, any letters, any reports, for example, to child protection services, they have not been accessed, end quote. Ms. Lewis said the most valuable information that has been accessed is personal data, which can be very valuable to hackers. Uh, I would say good job to her by owning up and saying that they do not know what the situation is with the data uh, because often uh, companies or representatives will come out and say, oh, you know, uh, no customer information uh, was affected or uh, obtained in this breach. And then months later, it turns out that some customer data was obtained, whereas here they're just stating we don't really know. Uh, the executive director of the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland has said the majority of rape crisis services were not affected by this ransomware attack. Another example of, you know, a very disturbing ransomware attack, just based on who the victims of this one are. The attackers involved should be hanging their heads in shame, in my opinion. Security researchers are examining newly discovered Mac ransomware samples from the notorious gang Lockbit, marking the first known example of a prominent ransomware group toying with macOS versions of its malware. Encryptors seem to have first cropped up in the malware analysis repository VirusTotal in November and December of last year, but went unnoticed until this week. Lockbit seems to have created both a version of the encryptor targeting newer Macs running the Apple processors and older Macs that ran on Apple's PowerPC chips. Researchers say the Lockbit Mac ransomware appears to be more of a first foray than anything that's fully functional and ready to be used but tinkering could indicate future plans, according to the Nars Technica report. Mac security researcher and Objective C Foundation founder Patrick Wardle, who I've referenced many times on the podcast, stated, quote, 
It would be naive to assume Lockbit won't improve and iterate on this ransomware, potentially creating a more effective and destructive version. End quote. Apple have declined to comment on these findings, and BleepingComputer.com separately have a pretty great rundown of information, uh, more detailed technically than the Ars Technica article. So I'll share links to both articles uh, if you'd like to review those. In pretty perfect timing, TechCrunch reported that researchers say they have found evidence that the feature called Lockdown Mode helped block an attack by hackers using spyware made by the infamous mercenary hacking provider NSO Group on those Apple devices. Cybersecurity and Human Rights Research Group Citizen Lab released a report analyzing three new zero-day exploits in iOS 15 and iOS 16, meaning Apple was unaware of the vulnerabilities at the time they were used to target at least two Mexican human rights defenders. One of the exploits was blocked by lockdown mode. And this is the first documented case where lockdown mode has successfully protected someone from a targeted attack. Citizen Lab researchers said that the target's iPhones blocked the hacking attempts and showed a notification saying lockdown mode prevented someone from accessing the phone's home app. The researchers, however, note that it's possible that at some point NSO's exploit developers may have figured out a way to correct the notification issue, such as by fingerprinting lockdown mode. As other researchers have pointed out in the past, it's easy to fingerprint users to determine who has lockdown mode turned on, but that's not to say its protections are not meaningful. As this case found by Citizen Lab shows, lockdown mode can be effective. That NSO group seems to be a real thorn in the side of Apple. Steve Huffman, the CEO of Reddit, told the New York Times that they plan to charge companies accessing its API for the purpose of pulling its 18 years worth of content generated mostly by humans for the purposes of AI. The API would still be free to developers working on bots and other Reddit tools and researchers working on academic or non-commercial projects, but simply mainlining Reddit's conversations for AI training purposes will come with a price the exact amounts of which should arrive in the coming weeks. While it intends to limit access to AIs, Reddit said it intends to give developers and moderators better tools for working within their communities. Reddit's shift on API access comes as the company is looking to go public in the second half of 2023, and this is probably just one of many organizations that has this big repository of data, these community forms, uh, who are going to move to try and protect what is essentially their asset even though it's contributed by users of the community because the data is where the value is. ESET will present findings at the RSA conference showing that more than half of secondhand enterprise routers that they bought for testing have been left completely intact by their previous owners, according to a report by Ars Technica. And the devices were brimming with network information, credentials, and confidential data about the institutions that they had belonged to. The researchers bought 18 used routers in different models made by three mainstream vendors, Cisco, Fortinet, and Juniper Networks. Of those, nine were just as their owners had left them and fully accessible, while only five had been properly wiped. Two were encrypted, one was dead, and one was a mirror copy of another device. All nine of the unprotected devices contained credentials for the organization's VPN, credentials for another secure network communication service, or hashed root administrator passwords. And all of them included enough identifying data to determine who the previous owner or operator of the router had been. 
Eight of the nine unprotected devices included router-to-router authentication keys and information about how the router connected to specific applications used by the previous owner. Four devices exposed credentials for connecting to the networks of other organizations like trusted partners, collaborators, or other third parties. And three contained information about how an entity could connect as a third party to the previous owner's network, and two directly contained customer data. 18 routers is a tiny sample out of millions of enterprise networking devices circulating around the world on the resale market, but other researchers have said they've repeatedly seen same issues in their work as well. So (laughs) if you're on a network team, be sure to wipe those uh, routers when they're being retired. A windowscentral.com article featured the presence detection, which is a new feature that allows Windows devices and apps to recognize when someone is present in front of their device and offer unique experiences based on that detection. Not all Windows PCs are equipped with a presence detector, but for devices that are, today's preview build adds several privacy setting options to the Windows settings app for configuring which apps have access to the presence sensor API. The API was introduced with the Windows 11 2022 update, and Microsoft says it adds more APIs in the latest preview builds of Windows 11. Of course, only apps built with the presence sensor in mind will be able to detect if you're in front of your PC and will have to request permission first. And you can go to settings, privacy and security, presence sensing to find that setting within the Windows setting app. And this could be kind of troubling because obviously with remote work, a lot of organizations have been trying to find a way to uh, ensure that their employees are actually at the desk and working. Uh, If this could be manipulated by some monitoring products, for example, uh, this could be troubling. And I know that my laptop that I use, my primary laptop, uh, does have a similar feature from Alienware, and it will detect if I'm in front of it and wake it up or essentially keep the screen active uh, while I'm there. So, I mean, it's probably going to become pretty common on machines going forward. Microsoft posted an update on KB5021130, which is the update for the net logon protocol that caused a lot of problems last year. And the update states that the they've moved the enforcement by default phase of the registry key from April 11th, 2023 to June 13th, 2023 in the timing of updates to address the CVE-2022-38023. Ryan Reese on Twitter said, please, I need everyone, especially those with third-party devices such as NetApp Storage, to test enforcement mode ASAP. Nothing confirmed yet, but he's starting to see a preponderance of internal reports that this might not go as smoothly as we think. And certainly, uh, a few months ago when this update was rolled out, things did not go smoothly. So it sounds like there may be some concern of switching this enforcement by default setting again, uh, that this may break uh, some at least third-party devices such as NetApp Storage. So uh, keep your eyes peeled, I guess, and uh, listen for things to go bang in your organization. The creators of ProtonMail have announced ProtonPass, which is a password manager product. According to TechCrunch.com, everything you store in ProtonPass is end-to-end encrypted, including passwords, obviously, email addresses, URLs, and notes. This way, Proton never has access to your personal information uh, as the user key is required to decrypt data and cryptographic operations occur locally on your device. 
even if Proton servers are breached, your data should still be safe. A beta version of Proton Pass is available to loyal Proton customers, such as users who have a lifetime plan, and customers with a visionary plan will be able to access the product shortly. They do intend to have a freemium offering when the product is launched, and Proton Pass is currently available on a desktop, iOS, or Android device. There are browser extensions for Google Chrome and Mozilla Firefox, and customers can also use Proton Pass as a two-factor authenticator. And finally on the news this week, congratulations to Christian Riley and HashiCorp as Christian announced this week that he has joined HashiCorp as their EMEA CTO. Christian, of course, was previously with Citrix as CTO and also Bechtel in the past. So congratulations again to both. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Swift on security had a pretty timely tweet about MFA fatigue or basically MFA fatigue PSA, uh, where he states if you are being prompted multiple times a day, then there is a problem with how your systems are configured. Uh, You should not be getting pestered multiple times a day from your systems because that creates the conditions for you to be duped by MFA fatigue. Although I will say that there's so many different systems that you interact with in a given day now that feature MFA, that it can also contribute to MFA fatigue, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe your systems are configured incorrectly, but even if they're configured correctly, you may be getting so many MFA prompts from different systems that you interact with that that can also create the conditions for MFA fatigue. Also, just a warning for people to not use ChatGPT apps or extensions. ChatGPT or OpenAI do not have an official app as of yet, and I saw Hacker News had a story about a fake malicious Chrome extension, uh, but I've also additionally seen ads in Google Ads about ChatGPT apps and services, and also on TikTok and other places for ChatGPT aggregator apps. It is open season, folks, so be warned if you know people who are using ChatGPT, Uh, Tell them not to download or install apps or extensions for it because uh, they'll be easy prey. Finally, the Cloud Paging User Group have a Slack workspace pull-up. We're asking for input on what topics people would like to see or hear about next in the next meetup, which should take place in June. So if you're interested in that, join the user group. We'll give you access to Slack, and then you'll be able to vote in the poll. Of course, as always, thank you so much for listening and catch you next week.